Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Part 5 of our archive presentation continues the story of what we don't know about reality, exploring concepts of something emerging from nothing, why there's something rather than nothing, some ideas of why this something might be the way it is, specifically that maybe it's some kind of simulation after all, and finally, how certain cranks leverage honest scientific and philosophical questions to the service of their own nonsense woo-woo ideas, looking straight at you, Deepak Chopra. This is, of course, an opportunity for us to point you in the direction of another That's Not Canon Productions podcast, and this one is right up our alley, and we hope yours. It's a fiction show with the excellent and alliterative name Mist Home Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality. Each episode is presented as an audio guide to one or another exhibit in the titular museum, but the guide isn't limited to describing the exhibit itself. It also provides a backstory for each item. And, lucky you, Season 3 just got underway. Get over there and explore the museum. And while you're at it, listen to our something about why there's not nothing, but something. Or something like that. We need a little more time for this last one. So the one thing we learn about the universe as we go through our science classes as kids is that, as Douglas Adams once put it, Space is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Right. Maybe you've seen or heard some of the demonstrations of how vastly, unimaginably empty, even comparatively densely packed pockets like our solar system are. We chose this one, where a relatable young BBC dude in a leather jacket brings a marble-sized Earth to a soccer field he insists on calling a football pitch. Even when the Earth is scaled down to the size of a marble, the sun is still nearly a meter and a half across. 1.3 million Earths can fit inside the sun. In fact, this lovely big ball of plasma accounts for 99.86% of the entire solar system's mass. At around 58 million miles from the sun, or at our scale, the length of roughly five London buses, we encounter the first planet. Mercury, which compared to the sun would be the size of a tiny, teeny, weeny little pea. And now we come to the last rocky planet of the inner solar system. Named after the Roman god of war, Mars is 80 million kilometers from the Earth, and although at this scale it's less than a centimeter across, we are now around two and a quarter football pitches away from the sun. We're nearly one and a half kilometers away from our model sun on this glorious industrial estate, and Saturn is the size of a shot put. Although, once you add on the magnificent rings, it more than doubles in size. Continuing our journey, another 1.7 billion kilometers, and we come to our next planet, 
it's another blue beauty. Neptune is also similar in size to a snooker ball, but we're now four and a half kilometers from our starting point, which is about four and a half billion. Anyway, as he maps out the relative distances of the tiny planets to the tiny sun, it quickly becomes clear just how much of what we envision as our solar system model dangling from a classroom ceiling crafted desultorily in styrofoam by fourth graders is actually just empty space. Again, compared to most of the universe, this empty-ass solar system we call home is a Tokyo subway at rush hour. Most of space is way more uninhabited by matter than our local area. In short, the universe is just unfathomably empty. Actually, quick aside, as we feel we should mention this, at least in passing, based on the rotation of galaxies and the fact that the expansion of our universe is accelerating, the best current model of the large-scale structure of the universe is that everything we can measure, that is, everything that's included in the standard model of quantum mechanics, including stars, planets, etc., only makes up about 5% of the mass of the universe. The rest is currently called dark matter and dark energy, which are really just placeholder terms until we figure out what the hell we're actually talking about. So space contains more than just the shiny stuff. But still, point stands. Back to that empty space. It turns out, as physicist Lawrence Krauss notes, all of that nothing out there isn't as dull and empty as you might assume. If you take empty space, and that means get rid of all the particles, all the radiation, absolutely everything, so there's nothing there, if that nothing weighs something, then it contributes a term like this. Now, that sounds ridiculous. Why should nothing weigh something? Nothing is nothing. The answer is nothing isn't nothing anymore in physics. Because of the laws of quantum mechanics and special relativity, on extremely small scales, nothing is really a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence in a time scale so short you can't see them. The point is, it, we can't measure virtual particles directly, but we can measure their effects indirectly. And in fact, they're responsible for the best predictions in physics. This is the space inside of a proton. To clarify, he's showing you a visual of a bunch of moving blue blobs. The empty space inside of a proton. Not where the quarks are, but the empty space between the quarks. And this is, not a, this is an animation, but it's an exact animation coming from physical calculations. This is what the space looks like. Now, how do we know that? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the things are, it turns out most of the mass of the proton comes not from the quarks within a proton, but from the empty space between the quarks. These fields popping in and out of existence produce about 90% of the mass of a proton. And since protons and neutrons are the dominant stuff in your body, the empty space is responsible for 90% of your mass. So these empty space is vital to science, and these calculations are vital to understanding not just protons, but electrons and atoms, and produce the best comparisons, the, and I will repeat this, the best comparisons between theory and experiment in all of science to 10 decimal places in quantum electrodynamics using these calculations, we can get the right answer. Okay, so most of even atoms is empty space, but that empty space is also where most of the mass of those atoms comes from. No, I don't get it either, but here's the big idea. Krauss and others, including string theory poster boy Brian Greene, believe that much of the action in the universe is from virtual particles that form, collide with their exact opposite virtual particles, and then disappear almost immediately. This idea yields a concept called quantum foam. We'll have another physicist, Dr. Don Lincoln of Fermilab, explain what this is. Again, apologies that you can't see the video. The image you're seeing gives you an idea of the smallest quantum reality. The flickering colors represent the constant creation and destruction of matter and antimatter. 
Electrons and antimatter electrons, quarks and antimatter quarks, they are created from nothing and disappear back into nothingness. We can see that when we look at what is going on at the smallest and most quantum of scales, that empty space is actually extremely busy. Scientists have a name for these effervescent subatomic objects. They are called virtual particles. There are lots of other ways to visualize this, but one way is to think of the foam on a particularly fizzy root beer. If you look closely, you can see bubbles appearing and disappearing in an ever-changing way. For this reason, some scientists call these virtual particles quantum foam. Okay, so we have empty space, but it turns out that it is not as empty as we thought, what with all the dark stuff. And also, at the smallest scales, virtual particles are created and almost instantly destroyed in a constant chaos called quantum foam. That's really unsettling. Agreed. Though, we'll let Dr. Krauss deliver perhaps the weirdest implication for our understanding of these quantum effects and what they might mean for how our universe came to be in the first place. All around. There's lots of energy everywhere. How can you say that the energy of the universe is zero? Well, let me take you back to one of your favorite times, high school physics, okay? So I throw a coin up in the air, comes back down. I throw it up faster, goes a little higher, comes back down. If I throw up really fast, it doesn't come back down at all, as long as we forget the roof and all the rest of the stuff. Well, we teach high school students one way to calculate that. We turn it into accounting. It turns out the energy of the coin has a positive piece, we call it the kinetic energy, mm -hmm. and a negative piece, which is the potential energy due to gravity. It's actually negative. And we add those two pieces up, and if you make the positive piece big enough, so the total energy is positive, it'll escape without coming back down. If the total energy is exactly zero, where the positive energy from the speed is equal to the negative energy from gravity, then it'll, it'll uh, just escape. It'll, it'll go up, slow down, never quite stopping. So you see, gravity has this negative piece. And if you can balance the two, the total energy can be zero. And in fact, what's amazing is it turns out, in fact, one of the other great discoveries in the last 20 years, is we've measured the geometry of the universe. Einstein told us that space is curved in the presence of matter. And one of the big questions of cosmology, the 20th century, in fact, was what's the curvature of the universe? Is it so-called open, closed, or flat? Flat being the boundary between a universe that closes on itself and one that's open. And it turns out that we've discovered the universe is flat. Well, what's amazing is it turns out in a flat universe, the energies add up to be precisely zero. The energy of every galaxy measure their speeds, and then you work out the attraction, the two add up to precisely zero. An amazing discovery that, that confirms this notion that not only is the universe flat and mathematically beautiful, but begins to give this inkling that maybe, maybe, maybe we could come from nothing. You know, when we look on Earth, yeah, there's lots of energy, and it's a really weird concept. Mm -hmm. And throughout our discussion, I suspect, we may violate common sense. <laughs> and the point is, why should the universe obey our common sense? We evolved on the savanna to avoid lions, and, and you know we didn't we didn't evolve to understand quantum mechanics, and so one of the great things about science is it forces us to refine our idea of what's common sense. It forces us to have our beliefs conform to the evidence of reality rather than the other way around. The universe may not be like we'd like it to be, but it doesn't really care. The simplest version of nothing it might be empty space, just uh, the nothing of the Bible, an infinite, dark, empty void, but. As I have been mentioning, that empty space is actually quite complicated. When we put together quantum mechanics and relativity, two of the foundations of 20th century physics, 
We put them together and we find out that empty space is actually a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles popping in and out of existence every second. So quickly you can't see them. In fact, if you try to measure them, they're not there. But they have an impact that we can actually calculate and predict. And it, in fact, it produces the best predictions in all of physics. It explains why the atoms in your body behave the way they do, and in fact, why your body has mass. Now, some people say, well, if there's virtual particles there, it's really not nothing. But there are no real particles. You try and measure things there, there's nothing. But those virtual particles can give space energy. And in fact, we've discovered, to our great surprise, it won the Nobel Prize two years ago, that, that empty space has energy. And if you put energy in empty space, then it's really strange, because it's not like the normal energy of you and I. It's not gravitationally attractive. It's actually repulsive. And we've discovered the expansion of the universe is not slowing down like any sensible universe should do. It's actually speeding up. It's getting faster and faster. And that's because it's dominated by the energy of empty space. But it actually gets a little more interesting because you might say, well, look, that's not nothing because there's still space. And I say, OK, but it turns out when you apply quantum mechanics to gravity, then even space itself can pop into existence from nothing. Space and time can spontaneously pop into existence. You, whole universes can pop into existence. And most of them will disappear at a time scale so short you wouldn't know about it. The ones that can survive for a long time have zero total energy. <laughs> and so you're beginning to see the thread here. So, wait, I know he just told us that's speculative. But did you really bring us through all of that to tell us that modern physics thinks maybe the whole universe, which is mostly made out of nothing, may have spontaneously emerged out of nothing and for no reason? Well, yeah. And to throw another spanner into this whole scenario, there's a different dude who wrote a book called Why Does the World Exist? In this rollicking tome, author and philosopher Jim Holt traces the history of this question, starting from the declaration of early Christian fathers that God created the universe from nothing, no further explanations required, to modern cosmological calculations indicating that universes from nothing, as physicists understand the term, are potentially not even that difficult to create. And, perhaps disturbingly, that creating such universes might be within the remit of some human tinkerers over the next few centuries, assuming that technological advancement continues at a geometric rate. As you can hear in the man's TED Talk, he hits on many of the topics we've covered here. You know, one theory is that God was so bored with pondering the puzzle of his own existence that he created the world you know, just to distract himself. But anyway, so let's first forget about God. So we have, take God of the equation, we have blank plus nothing equals the world. Now, if you're a Buddhist, you might want to stop right there. Because essentially you've got, what you've got is nothing equals the world, and by symmetry of identity, that means the world equals nothing. Okay, and to a Buddhist, the world is just a whole lot of nothing. It's a big uh, cosmic vacuity. And, uh, you know, we think there's a lot of something out there, but that's because we're enslaved by our desires. If we let our desires kind of melt away, uh, we'll see the world for what it truly is, a vacuity, nothingness, and we'll slip into this happy state of nirvana, which has been defined as having just enough life to enjoy being dead. Okay, so that's it. And takes Krauss's idea to task via Stephen Hawking, then touches on some other stuff that we haven't even ventured into, including the currently popular physics concept of the multiverse. What a scientific law is. And if you don't believe me on this, uh, you listen to Stephen Hawking, who himself put forward a model of the cosmos that was self-contained, didn't require any outside cause, any creator. And after proposing this, Hawking admitted that he was still puzzled. I mean, he said, you know, these are just, this model is just equations. 
What breathes fire into the, into the equations and creates a world for them to describe? He was puzzled by this. So equations themselves can't do the magic, can't resolve the puzzle of existence. And besides, even if the laws could do that, why this set of laws? Why quantum field theory that describes a universe with a certain number of forces and particles and so forth? Why not a completely different set of laws? There are you know, many, many mathematically consistent sets of laws. Why not no laws at all? Why not sheer nothingness? So this is a problem, you know, believe it or not, that reflective physicists really think a lot about. And at this point, they tend to go metaphysical. Say, well, maybe the set of laws that describe our universe, it's just one set of laws, and it describes one part of reality, but maybe every consistent set of laws describes another part of reality. And in fact, all possible physical worlds really exist. They're all out there. We just see a little tiny part of reality that's described by the laws of quantum field theory, but there are many, many other worlds, parts of reality that are described by vastly different theories that are different from ours in ways we can't imagine that are you know, inconceivably exotic. Um, Steven Weinberg, the father of the standard model of particle physics, has actually flirted with this idea himself that all possible realities actually exist. Uh, also, a, a younger physicist, Max Tegmark, who believes that, that all mathematical structures exist, and mathematical existence is the same thing as physical existence, so we have this vastly rich multiverse that encompasses every logical possibility. His fascinating conclusion after considering many possibilities in interviews with various luminaries is that while extreme realities might require an explanation, perhaps more mediocre realities, those that are neither perfect nor totally depraved, actually don't. In other words, ours may simply be the most pedestrian of all of the possibilities for how things could have turned out. Also, we kind of like his wrap-up. So what kind of reality do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a special reality? What if we were living in the most elegant possible reality? What, imagine the existential pressure on us to live up to that, you know, to be elegant, not to pull down the tone of it. Or what if we were living in the fullest possible reality? Well, then our existence would be guaranteed because every possible thing exists in that reality, but our choices would be meaningless. You know, if I, if I really struggle morally and agonize and I, I decide to do the right thing, it does, what difference does it make? Because there are an infinite number of versions of me also doing the right thing and an infinite number doing the wrong thing. So my choices are meaningless. So we don't want to live in that special reality. And as for the special reality of nothingness, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Living in a generic reality that's mediocre. You know, there, there are nasty bits and nice bits, and we can make the nice bits bigger and the nasty bits smaller, and that gives us a kind of purpose in life. You know, the universe is absurd, but we can still construct a purpose, and that's a pretty good one. And the, the overall medi mediocrity of reality kind of resonates nicely with the mediocrity we all feel in the core of our being. And I know you feel it. I mean, you, I know you all, you're all special, but you're still kind of secretly mediocre, don't you think? Um, <laughs> Remember that guy we introduced back during the philosophy section, Jim Bagot, who wrote a book called A Beginner's Guide to Reality? Well, after tracing all the options for understanding that reality through the philosophy and science we just covered, along with social construction and a bunch of other stuff we left out, he notes that anyone who's depending on science for solid answers, having grown weary of the philosophers, is in for a bit of a shock. What have we got? We have wave shadows and particle shadows. We have spooky action at a distance between entangled quantum objects. We have space built from hypothetical loops in a universe without time. 
we have hypothetical vibrating strings in an N11 dimensional spacetime. We didn't have time to get to string theory, but who doggy is that a weird one? We have a universe that might be a three-dimensional membrane in which there might be seven extra dimensions hidden in your hair. So, what is real? We have to admit, we don't know. So the best thinkers in our headiest disciplines don't have a great handle, even after thousands of years and indescribable advancements in any number of fields of endeavor, on what exactly reality is when we get down to brass tacks. Which, of course, and inevitably, means that the space for ideas that might explain why we happen to be what we are, where and when we are, is still pretty wide open. On the more serious side, that has led to some very interesting thought experiments, including one posed in 2003 by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom. We know we've recommended a bunch of additional reading in this episode, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention another book by Bostrom that, in spite of its rather anodyne title, that is, Superintelligence, is unquestionably the most pants-shittingly terrifying book we've read in the last 10 years or so. It's about artificial intelligence. And if you don't read it, please at least peruse the two super long posts on the excellent blog, Wait But Why, that deal with many of the book's implications. Show notes of... Bostrom's simulation theory is essentially this. As is clear to anyone with an Xbox and a copy of Red Dead Redemption 2, humans seem to like the idea of simulating human history via computers. And over the past few decades, the computing power that we can devote to this pursuit has grown exponentially, going from Pong to photorealistic 3D open worlds. Given this initial condition, Bostrom draws these pretty reasonable conclusions. Either civilizations that reach or exceed our level of complexity inevitably die out for some reason. Yeesh. Or civilizations that exceed our current level of complexity decide for some reason to stop pursuing what Bostrom calls ancestor simulations. That is, Red Dead or The Matrix or Future Tech VR and steroids. Or finally, that almost all beings having human-like experiences such as ours are probably existing in one of these extremely complex simulations. That includes us. The fuck you say? I know, sounds super weird, but I invite you to read through those propositions and find the hole in them. I sure can't. And if Bostrom's right, then it's far more likely that we're in a simulation than in what we might call base reality. Naturally, other far less careful thinkers have built this idea out with an absurd degree of specificity. One typically overconfident tome, Simulation Theory Explained, a 37-minute audiobook by Austin Waters, creates an alphabetical series of supposedly inevitable conclusions that will arise from our probably simulated existences. I. Time, at some point, will cease to exist. J. Scientists, teachers, astronomers, management gurus, etc., who did exceptionally well on this planet, will be entrusted with greater responsibilities to manage the affairs of the other worlds. K. It appears from lack of new initiatives, ideas, artistic creations, and discoveries that most probably it is a wrap-up time, what we know as end of time. Cool story, bro. But there are more responsible people who are interested in how we could tell whether the reality we experience is actually a complex simulation, 
This list includes physicist S. James Gates Jr., who has some interesting things to say in conversation with the aforementioned Neil deGrasse Tyson about physics theories and computer code. And what I've come to understand is that there are these incredible pictures that contain all the information of a set of equations that are related to string theory. And it's even more bizarre than that because when you then try to understand these pictures, you find out that buried in them are computer codes just like the type that you find in a browser when you go surf the web. You're saying your attempt to understand the fundamental operations of nature leads you to a set of equations that are indistinguishable from the equations that drive search engines and browsers on yeah, our computers. That is correct. So the wait, wait, I'm still, wait. I have to just be silent from here. <laughs> so you're saying as you dig deeper, you find computer code writ in the fabric of the cosmos. Into the equations that we want to use to describe the cosmos, yes. Computer code. Computer code, strings of bits of ones and zeros. It's not just sort of resembles computer code, you're saying it is computer code. It's not even just is computer code, it's a special kind of computer code that was invented by a scientist named Claude Shannon in the 1940s. That's what we find very, very deeply inside the equations that occur in string theory and in general in systems that we say are supersymmetric. We will stipulate that Professor Gates' conclusions are controversial, but the general simulation theory is popular with some other super smart folks, most notably Tesla Man. Have you thought about this? And a lot. Are we? And I mean, like the, the, the strongest argument for, the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. And soon we'll have you know, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just in, indistinguishable. Um, even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is right now, um, then you just say, okay, well, well let's imagine it's 10,000 years in the future. Uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. So given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be you know, billions of such computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. This, that seems to be like clearly what it suggests. Right. And, and actually You'd be right to anticipate a discussion of the matrix at this point, but we're saving that for next time. Instead, we'll note that with all this heady philosophizing and how difficult to understand our reality is, it's basically inevitable that bullshit artists are going to take advantage of the situation and create pretty-sounding nothings out of the ongoing mystery of existence. And if unwarranted confidence in horseshit explanations could be incarnated in human form, it's safe to say that form would be Deepak Chopra. We mentioned him in our dangerous Oprah questioning segment last time, but it's when he gets deep into combining quantum mechanics with his ridiculous gloss on Eastern philosophy that his verbal turds truly waft and effluviate like a satanic Yankee candle. The following conversation, which he has the nerve to call your daily dose of wisdom, is pure distilled woo-woo. 
He and his interviewee, while touching on a number of our topics, somehow managed to mangle them so badly that even we know it's bullshit of the purest racerine. It's uh, very dear to my heart, and that is non-locality. So, what's non-locality? Well, in quantum physics, they talk about this communication between isolated particles. <laughs> no! And that they somehow are able to communicate non-locally or at a distance and beyond space and time. No. So the question is, does that apply beyond the level of subatomic particles? Can we begin to think about non-locality in terms of our relationships? Uh, can we think about consciousness as something that transcends our brain, our body, and may have the capacity to reach out and connect with another person at a distance? Obviously not. Actually, we did an experiment together, too. So the experiment that we did together was looking at uh, you as the sender, looking at the image of somebody via closed-circuit television. That person's physiology was being monitored, and we were actually able to measure the correlation between your intention and this kind of non-local exchange of information measured by the physiological activity of the distant person. The study seems actually to produce a stronger effect than things like the prevention of second heart attacks by taking aspirin. Jesus, that's clearly unwarranted. My take is that actually there's no such thing as distance in space-time to begin with. That our perception is a snapshot of the activity of the universe. And in taking the snapshot, we mistake the snapshot for the reality. And then we try to figure out, you know, how's this intention here? having an effect there when in fact in the totality it's one gigantic non-local activity interacting with itself so you know when i send the intention there actually i'm sending an intention to myself uh, that myself is the whole activity mm -hmm. instead of the snapshot of the activity somebody pour me a scotch um, at the institute of nordic sciences we uh, did an experiment looking at uh, people, we called it the love study, mm -hmm. and we recruited couples, one of whom had cancer. We took the healthy partner through a compassionate intention training program, and then afterward brought them into the lab to look at this level of interconnectedness. And could the healing powers of love transcend space and time? And we, in fact, found that. We found highly statistically significant correlations when the healthy partner was sending love to their, their partner, who happened to be in a 2,000-pound electromagnetically shielded room, very well-controlled circumstances. And so it does provide a kind of proof of principle for this interconnected, non-local embeddedness of each of us in something that's bigger than ourselves. And therefore, we shouldn't even be calling these psychic abilities because they're, in fact, an activity in a single system and that system is already beyond space and time, and perceptual experience is what's creating space and time. Perceptual Fucking psychic healing? We want you to understand we are shortening our lives from the stress of listening to and editing this crap for your delectation. Totally worth it, though. Deepak only scratches the surface of the unwarranted conclusions that motivated individuals have come to based on the mysteries that reality still presents us with. This brings us to the most conspiracy-ish of the mostly non-conspiracy topics we're covering this time, the Mandela Effect.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.